0: Hello, friends. I'm Marissa Blackwood, and welcome to All Things Murder. Welcome to All Things Murder, the show that dives into real true crime cases, that inspired pop culture movies and shows we know today. I'm Marissa Blackwood, and this case is gonna be an interesting one that involves a family man, the mafia, and of course, murder. For today, my friends, we'll be talking about The Iceman, Richard Kuklinski. Listener's discretion is advised. If you're a fan of horror movies or true crime, or perhaps both like myself, don't forget to like and subscribe. Also, don't forget to check us out on YouTube at All Things Murder. New episodes on Thursdays. The Iceman is a 2012 American biographical crime film loosely based on the hitman Richard Kuklinski. Starring Michael Shannon as Richard, Ray Liotta, James Franco's in it, Weona Ryder as his wife. Like, it's a really freaking awesome cast. Like, movie, no lie. Pretty bitchin'. Pretty bitchin'. To his family and his neighbors in suburban New Jersey, Richard Kuklinski was an all-American husband and dad. To the Mafia and his victims, he was a terrible hitman known as the Iceman Killer. Richard Kuklinski was born on April 11, 1935 in Jersey City to an aggressive alcoholic dad and a stern religious mother, both of which beat the hell out of him and his three siblings regularly. And We all know, an alcoholic and a religious mom, this is not going to be a great childhood. His dad's beatings got so rough that it actually killed one of Richard's older brothers, and he told authorities, you know, my kid fell down the stairs. Richard's older brother was a convicted rapist and murderer, Joseph Kuklinski, who was actually convicted in 1970 of raping a 12-year-old girl and then murdering her by throwing her and her dog off the top of a five-story building. So yeah, Dad's an alcoholic, but maybe he did the world a frickin' favor, man. When Richard was asked about his brother's crimes, he replied with, quote, We come from the same father, end quote. Richard took all the violence that he was getting at home, you know, he gave it back to the world. Getting abused at home, I gotta bully or murder people, because that's what people do, apparently, back then. He tortured and killed neighborhood cats and stray dogs. In the eighth grade, he dropped out of school. And that same year, when he was 14, he beat a bully, the town bully named Charlie Lane, who was also a leader of a small gang of teenagers known as the Project Boys. And he beat this kid to death. He then dumped Charlie's body off a bridge in South Jersey after removing his teeth and chopping off his fingertips with a hatchet in an effort to prevent identifying the body. But sadly, the body was never found. Guys started with cats and dogs and was like, I'm ready to start with the bully. In the mid-1960s, Richard worked at a Manhattan film lab. Now, through this lab, he got access to master copies of popular films at the time, and he made bootleg copies of those to sell. He started bootlegging porn films, and it was through this activity that got him connected with the Mafia. Could I buy some tapes please? It's for my daughter's wedding. He became an all-purpose criminal, he started trafficking illegal porn, staging robberies, and you know, beating anyone the mob felt need a warning to. Hey, hey Richard, go talk to, go talk to Giovanni. Hey, think he's a uh, forgetting who the hell's in charge. Since his knack for handling, you know, sticky situations, and his ability to consistently, you know, pull in cash for the family, for the DiMeo crew, he earned their respect. Now if you earn a Mafia's respect, oh God, you have, you have the greatest alliance. In time, it got him the attention of other Mafia families, such as the Gambino crime family, of which DiMeo was, of course, a member. Richard wasn't a professional killer at this time, just a recreational one, just on the weekends, but that was all gonna change. In 1954, he began to make periodic trips from New Jersey to New York City, prowling through the Upper West Side of Manhattan looking for victims. His targets were often people who he would say annoyed him, like loudmouth people. Someone he felt has slighted him in some way, so if he pissed him off or just laughed the wrong way at a bar, You're next. I'm killing that guy. That's- that's how he operated. Other times, he would just kill at random just for the sake of killing, like, ah, eh, fuck it. Guy did not care. His methods of killing were almost as random as his selection of victims. He shot, he stabbed, strangled, poisoned, or bludgeoned them. Just depending on what he was feeling that day. Ah, Wednesday. Today's a stabbing day. Like, what dude? No. Since he changed his weapons consistently, this also made it hard for police to suspect the murders were all connected and the work of one person. He even used everything from an ice pick, hand grenades, to his bare hands. But he did say he favored the use of cyanide, since it killed someone quickly and was hard to detect in a toxology test. According to a stigma Richard Kowlinski once made, a nasal spray-filled bottle with cyanide, and someone died from that. Like, how messed up are you? Richard continued to carry out assignments for the DeMio and the Gambinos, and his willingness to murder, you know, for fun, Disturbed even his criminal colleagues. That's... that's messed up. They began to refer him as the devil himself. These are all crime families, okay? They kill people on a daily, but they're like, Whoa, Richard? That guy's messed up. That guy's got some issues. Where do we draw the line here, people? Where do we draw the line? Richard did have two rules. No women and no children. Oh, well, thank God for that. Beyond that, he said anything was fair game. On one occasion, Richard recalled preparing to kill a man who was begging and praying for his life. He told the man he could have 30 minutes to pray to God to see if God would come and intervene. Quote, but God never showed up and he never changed the circumstances and that was that. It wasn't too nice. That's one thing I shouldn't have done. I shouldn't have done that one. I shouldn't have done it that way, end quote. That was the one. He's like, ah, I went too far on that one, okay? I didn't mean to bring God into it. I I went too far. It was one of the only times he ever expressed remorse for his actions, and he was particularly clever when it came to avoiding the authorities. I mean, he is a hitman, and he is in the Mafia. I think he knows how to, you know, avoid authorities. Like his first victim, he would remove the fingers and the teeth of his victims, you know, to prevent their identification. He then melted the bodies in oil drums, or he would leave them in the back of junkyard cars for someone to crush him. He sometimes he'd throw them in the Hudson River or dispose of them in mine shafts. Why is every serial killer who's close to New Jersey and New York? What, what is up with the Hudson? Like does no one check that? Like, how many bodies are in the Hudson River? His favorite trick was leaving his victims' bodies in industrial freezers, then dumping them months or even years later. When the police found the bodies, the deceased would appear like they were recently killed. So if he held them at months at a time or years at a time, they look fresh to them. And Richard was never a suspect. This technique of Richard his nickname, the Iceman. At the time, the police thought it was homeless people attacking and killing each other. They did not suspect that there was just one ruthless killer coming from New Jersey to murder at random. Tuesday night, time to murder. Like, what is going on here, people? Even Richard's family never suspected what was going on. Oh no, oh no. In 1961, he married his wife, Barbara. She did not know by the time that they met this man who was dubbed the Iceman Killer, had already, allegedly, committed about 65 murders. Yeah, I don't think anyone would bring that up on a first date, Barbara. Hi, my name's Richard. Hitman. 65 today. Just saying. No one's gonna bring that up, Barbara. No one. The pair had three kids together, and to their suburban New New Jersey neighbors, they were the ideal, all-American family. Their kids attended private schools, and the family hosted barbecues in their backyard by their pool. They took trips to Disneyland over the holidays. Like, this family was, like, banking it. Like, uh, look at us. Richard was even an usher every Sunday at mass. He's like, I murder. I talk to God later. Like, he was just pulling off the all-American family front, for sure. When the police finally did catch up with his ass, Barbara had no clue what her husband had done to break the law. Poor woman. She did know, however, that he had a temper. She said, yeah, he did have his bad days. When he was out of sorts, he was actually abusive to him, beating Barbara so bad one time he broke her nose. He would always leave bruises. He was an abusive man when he had a bad day. For 25 years, Richard Kuklinski kept up with the family man facade by thoroughly compartmentalizing his life. He didn't tell his criminal colleagues who he worked with anything about his personal life, his family, or where he lives. He never socialized outside of work. I mean, that part was smart, but I guess. He stayed away from drugs, prostitutes. He never even bought what the mob was selling. He was an employee, not a client. He's like, nah, I'm I'm just here to kill people and they're paying me to do it. I don't want any of that other perk, perks of the job. The undoing of the Iceman. After 25 years of working as a hitman for the mafia, Richard was like, I need to go solo. It's my Elton John moment. And he started his own crime ring in the 1980s, but this is where he started getting sloppy and was making mistakes like a dumbass. His undoing was a guy named Phil Salamine, a local mafia guy, just like him, and was the closest thing Richard had to a friend. Yes, his friend sold him out. Smart, smart mafia man. Phil helped the ATF, which is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, in a sting operation, and presented ATF agent Dominic Polifrone to Richard as a prospective client. Like, hey bro, guy in the mafia world, it's pretty bad, you should probably check him out. Dominic Polifone went undercover for 18 months to catch Richard. Dominic came to Richard with a job, then recorded Richard's promise to murder somebody in exchange for money. On December 17th, 1986, Richard met Dominic to meet Cyanide for this planned murder, which was to be an attempt on an undercover police officer. So they're like, hey get him on all sorts of charges he then tested dominic's purported cyanide on a street dog he was like something doesn't let me just test this shit out using hamburger as bait and saw that it was not poison it's like what the hell so suspicious richard didn't go through with the planned murder and was like i'm gonna go home whatever i'm gonna go home instead two hours later he was arrested at a roadblock He was charged with five murders on the following day and in 1988 was found guilty of four of them. He was later convinced of two more and given consecutive life sentences. Richard was ineligible for parole until 2046 when he would be 111 years old, so dead. He was incarcerated at Trenton State Prison. After his arrest, Richard Caglincy was not shy at all. This guy gave interviews to prosecutors, psychiatrists, reporters, criminologists, new anybody who wanted to talk to him. He participated in two documentaries about his life and he spoke candidly about the things he did and why he did them. He claimed to have killed the notoriously corrupt Jimmy Hoffa, for which he said he was paid $40,000. However, during the earlier HBO interview, he denied any knowledge of Hoffa's face. So you're just going to go back on your words, sir? I thought you were so proud to have been involved. Now you're just going to go back? Interesting. Interesting. He claimed that he only heard rumors, specifically that Jimmy Hoffa had been killed, put in a barrel, placed in a Japanese car, which was compacted with other cars and was shipped overseas. That is so excessive. In a TV interview from prison, he said, quote, I've never felt wrong for anything I've done, other than hurting my family. I do want my family to forgive me, end quote. Yeah, dude, I'm sure you do. He's like, I'm proud of killing people. It's just my family didn't deserve that. Oh, my poor family. In October of 2005, after nearly 18 years in prison, his health started deteriorating, karma, Richard was diagnosed with incurable inflammation of the blood vessels, and was eventually transferred to the hospital where Barbara went to go visit him. In and out of consciousness, he had in a moment of clarity, he asked the doctors to revive him if he should flatline. But on her way out, Barbara was like, "Uh uh-uh. She signed a do not resuscitate form. Yeah, she was like, no, in case some shit goes down, let him die. A week before he died, they called to see if she wanted to change her mind. Hey, do you want to resuscitate him? We can do it. She said no. Good for you, Barbara. On March 5th, 2006, at the age of 70, Richard Kuklinski died. He claimed to have murdered anywhere from 100 to 200 men, but none of these additional murders have been corroborated. But was the Iceman Killer an attention-seeking liar, or one of the worst mass murderers in history? I'm gonna say my opinion, as I do here. I think that guy was full of shit! I so think that guy was full of shit. He kept claiming things, and he would, like, add details and such. And then he would, like, retract and be like, oh, I don't remember saying that. Like, I just think that guy was full of shit. And that, my friends, is the story of the Iceman Killer, Richard Kuklinski rest in peace to all of his victims. Thank you all so much for joining me. I hope you all have a wonderful New Year's Eve. Hopefully 2023 will be good to us. Don't forget to tune in next week for a new All Things Murder, if you dare.